the American Vandal. From the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. Or, more accurately on this occasion, from the breakfast table at my mom's house in Indiana. For those of you en route to San Francisco, we have selected some sounds of the city as our special theme for this 50th episode. Lent to us courtesy of Bay Area native, multi-instrumentalist, composer, producer, and Grammy winner, Dana Leon. Check out his eclectic, transnational fusions on Apple Music, Spotify, YouTube, or via his website, danaleon.com. We launched this podcast in October of 2020, in the midst of a pandemic lockdown that indefinitely postponed our in-person programming. We had no idea what it was going to be at that time, aside from a stopgap measure. And although I have a lot more thoughts on that subject now, some of which I will be sharing this weekend in San Francisco, as we reach our 50th episode, I'm still not sure I can say confidently where this project is going. In the previous 49 episodes, we've been joined by journalists, historians, political scientists, economists, and more, appropriately befitting the cross-disciplinary potential of Twain studies. But of course, the study of culture, and particularly literature, remains central to our mission, and the plurality of our guests come out of literary studies. So it seems appropriate to mark this occasion with a tie-in to the largest gathering of literary studies scholars. The annual convention of the Modern Language Association takes place this weekend in San Francisco, bringing together thousands of professors, graduate students, and independent scholars. Each year, the MLA convention is given a theme by the current president of the organization. This year's theme is, appropriately, working conditions. And in this episode, I'm joined by the president of the MLA, Christopher Newfield, who has spent much of his career studying the working conditions of academics and helping to create the ascendant field of critical university studies. He has published three books on higher education, Unmaking the Public University, Ivy and Industry, and most recently, The Great Mistake, as well as much else on C-19 U.S. literature, cross-disciplinary methods, American studies, and the construction of race. After more than 30 years as a professor at University of California, Santa Barbara, Chris recently moved on to join the Independent Social Research Foundation in London as its director. For this conversation, we are also joined by Anna Cornblum, familiar to most listeners by this point from her four previous appearances. She's a professor of English at University of Illinois, Chicago, and the author of The Order of Forms, Realizing Capital, and forthcoming from Verso, Immediacy, selections from which inspired an episode in season four called Bootstrapping Across Dystopia. Anna is also currently part of the bargaining team for the UIC Faculty Union, which has set a strike deadline for later this month. All of us will be at MLA this weekend, where we hope many of you will be joining this conversation. And for more about the event and this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash
obvious question to open with is what role can and should organizations like MLA play in shaping the working conditions of its members? For me, rightly or wrongly, Chris, your election signaled at least a potential shift in priorities. An organization which has long been more or less synonymous with the status quo and perhaps even complacency, electing somebody who has been vocal about austerity and neoliberalism in the university, the specific dangers posed to literary studies and the broader humanities, and the need for vigilance, coordination, and adaptation from faculty. So if you like, maybe you can also explain why you decided to put yourself up for election and get more involved with the MLA. Well, I just have lived through 40 years of departments individually trying to solve the job crisis, trying to solve the, you know, the science crisis, <laughs> trying to define themselves as producing valid knowledge for undergraduates by themselves, and it hasn't worked. So the MLA was, you know, one organization that I've been a member of for like four decades, you know, so basically since my first year in graduate school that I thought could start to push towards developing a national strategy for dealing both with the employment crisis, which is ridiculous, both in the length that's been going on and how acute it is, given what the actual needs of the society are. So I can say more about that later. And which also just like needs to be solved with a credible strategy now. And we just, we never developed one. We've had one, which is essentially austerity, which is just cutting our programs. That never works. They cut as you know quickly as we cut. Oh, you, you need fewer students. Okay, so here's less money. So that's just kind of a downward spiral. And nobody can deal with that logic by themselves. So the MLA is, is one organization in the you know, American Council of Learned Societies. It's networked with the National Humanities Alliance, which is kind of a lobbying organization for the National Endowment for the Humanities. Uh, and there's the potential, and this is something that I've tried to use this year, for developing a network of professional activists that are really going to push for fixing the material conditions of the profession, which are the real problem. It's not, we're not putting out good enough knowledge. It's not that we're not teaching well enough. It's not that society doesn't need what we have. Great research, great teaching, great social need. It's that we don't have the infrastructure that we need in order to do our jobs properly. So that's a national issue and not an individual departmental one. Anna, well, you're probably most recognizably associated with upstart, more localized and field-specific organizations. You're also consistently involved with MLA, and I'm similarly interested in how you see MLA's potential role in collaborating and supporting projects, research, and organizing efforts. I think that's such a good question because I really, you know, appreciate the power of organizations. And I think that there's been a lot of cause to be a little bit upset with the lack of effective mobilizing, organizing advocacy and lack of political vision or as Chris put it, infrastructural vision really of even the MLA, even though it's such an enormous organization. So, you know, how can we hold our institutions accountable to actually serving, you know, our profession and the, the social good that we serve? 
So I do think that's a real question. I have been interested in, you know, different techniques, like I'm thinking about what's the way that say the MLA as a knowledge base that is uh, rooted in languages and literatures is rooted in, you know, representation and storytelling and in cultural mapping. Like how are those skills, you know, germane to building infrastructure? How are those skills germane to building movements, right? Last year, I actually put together for MLA a roundtable on different kind of strategies of literary criticism for social good and for social activism. I do think there are techniques and skills that are um, transferable from our literary expertise and from the kind of, again, like cultural meaning making and um, social mapping that a lot of this, our aesthetic objects, you know, participate in. That, that some of those skills are transferable to figuring out collective strategies. But also I think of these organizations and especially the MLA as like a place where we can talk to ourselves and do the work of fomenting a collective will that needs to be there in order to push for broader political infrastructural transformation. So I think that, you know, what's really precious about MLA is that opportunity for meta field conversations that transcend all kinds of tiny silos and for, you know, big and theoretical conversations and for state of the profession conversations. And that's why I love the topic for this year so much. As we speak, the academic workers in the University of California system, where Chris worked for most of his career and where both Anna and I were graduate students, appear to be on the verge of ending a six-week strike, the largest ever of its kind. It is the biggest, but just one of many victories for academic labor movements this year at institutions across the country. And Anna, I know you and your faculty union at UIC are actively bargaining and are prepared to strike later this month, but the academic labor movement is of course just part of a broader embrace of labor activism in the US and UK recently. In an episode from earlier this year, Jim Livingston characterized the so-called Great Resignation as an organic version of the general strike imagined by so many 19th century political economists and activists. It is still very much going on, as I've been reminded this week while visiting family in Indianapolis, where the effects of staffing shortages are evident everywhere I turn. And so one of the things I want to talk about is how do these things coalesce? How is the organizing of academic workers related to the organizing of Amazon warehouse workers and Starbucks baristas and railroad workers? I don't know, Anna, I think you should start on that because you've been involved in the, the union work at your own school this whole year. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's a wonderful question. And I, you know, guess the thesis line would be like that the conditions of extreme overwork, the conditions of governmental abandon, conditions of indifference to safety in the workplace, and just kind of relegating of individuals even more to their own wild and uh, resources for surviving. Those conditions that have been so extreme nationwide during the pandemic have been very, very intense in academia. And, you know, we over-functioned in a way that was structurally comparable to a number of industries and structurally incomparable to most industries, right? And that is brought home to people what their job is and what their kind of relationship institutionally is to their employers. And things have just been really clarifying, I would say, and really also exhausting and devastating. You know, we're in such a funny industry because as Chris said, like, there's great social need. You know, there's more people in college than ever before. There aren't 
a lack of jobs. They're a lack of equitably structured and fairly compensated jobs. And that's why thinking about academia as work and thinking about the, the conditions of that work, like salary, compensation, security, long-term contracts, things like that. It's so, it's so essential. Hopefully people realize. Yeah. Sorry, I'm just writing down. Good. <laughs> so one of the things that's been going on since the 1970s is kind of a business world sense of entitlement to increase levels of overwork and exploitation more or less at will. And the argument has been, well, either that or your job's going to go overseas, so you don't really have any choice. And it's been, it's a little trickier with service workers like teachers, although, you know, the MOOC round in uh, 2012 and 2013 was an attempt to develop a technology that would allow teaching to happen in India in the same way that paralegal services had been shipped out or, you know, radiology at a certain level has been shipped out and so on. So there's really just been this kind of one way attitude towards labor. And I think people are just <laughs> totally sick of it. People really try to adapt and adjust and be good sports about this for decades. And I, you know, I think that graduate students in literature and languages have been the souls of patience and fortitude on this front. Year after year, putting up with helplessness on the part of the profession, as well as just bad numbers of jobs that they could apply to and, and bad jobs that they were also forced to apply to, you know, one year positions and we're going to terminate and make them move again, et cetera. They would spend most of the year in the new job applying for the next job. And that's assuming that they can even get a full year contract. I've never understood why people thought that, I mean, this is like acceptable. In other words, that there should be a much deeper social and more honest social negotiation around what the business community can actually provide, given how much money it's taking out for itself, you know, at the level of executive salaries and so on. So, you know, my interpretation of what Anna is saying, and also just kind of watching what's happening here in Britain as well, where there's just rolling strikes in every service sector there is, just... A day a week, there's a strike and whatever it is, it's like the border force guys to take your passport are on strike today. Tomorrow, you know, it'll be ambulance drivers or train drivers or some other group. When the semester starts again, it's going to be a college professors back on strike one day a week or two days in a row, you know, so it's not shutting anything down, but it's nonetheless signaling an end to acceptance. I would like that to be better organized. I feel like the the feeling of enough is really pervasive and we just need, it needs to be organized better than it is. Yeah, I think that's really important because there's a risk if it's not organized that people end up thinking that it's particular industries that are the bad ones, right? I mean, I don't know what you guys want to say about the academic version of the great quit. But it certainly seems like anecdotally we can find that, like, you know, people even who have tenure are quitting and that people are quitting before finishing the PhD and, you know, people are quitting when they're in on the tenure track, people are giving up on the endless treadmill of trying to find more secure employment, even if it's just high profile anecdotes or whatever, what is that idea that people have that academia is uniquely exploited as an industry and that there's some other horizon out there. I don't think we're having a lot of good organized narrative and sense making 
about what this exact kind of vice of a contradiction that Chris was articulating that what is responsabilization, what is neoliberal compression, what is secular stagnation, it's asking for more and more and more from individual people and asking them to shoulder more and more responsibility. We're many decades deep into that, but how do we make sense of it in a collective way is a real question. Yeah, the most faculty surveys on workload which are not good enough, but they show anywhere between 50 and 60 hours as the normal work week. Mm -hmm. There was supposed to be a 40 hour week that generations fought and died for. There was even this idea, you know, what, 30, 40 years ago that we were gonna go to a four day week or three day week and technology was supposed to enable leisure. Right. It's gone in the opposite direction and it's entirely a capitalist exploitation model. I mean, it's not that complicated, really. It's, it's just cheaper. And then the, in the political system, it, in universities, public ones, like the one I worked in for 30 years, like the one that, that Anna's in, is yours public or you're private, Matt? Private. I, I believe we're classified as a small, private, comprehensive or private yeah. regional college. And it's not that different, you know, in terms of the state system or the back end of the business just gets used to everybody working 60 hours a week. Once that gets baked in, it's hard to get it out of the cake again, right? I mean, there has to be a lot of unpleasantness. And I mean, something that I, I think we have to face, and I'd love to talk with you all more about, is just a kind of confrontationalism that none of us got into this business to do, you know? Right. I like just sitting here at my desk. I don't like to argue with people. Right. But I have enough experience with stuff like Academic Senate to know that arguing makes a huge difference and that we're going to have to do it on a national scale now. This brings me to a topic which particularly interests me. One of the debates I've been engaged in is about the measure and financialization of faculty productivity. It's not hard to point out, as you have, that metrics colleges and universities use to do cost-benefit analysis can yield wildly differing results. For instance, if you rank departments or faculty on tuition revenue per credit hour without adjusting for class size as a percentage of enrollment caps, you will, in all likelihood, underrate productivity of humanities faculty and other faculty who serve disproportionately in general education. But I'm not sure how valuable negotiating the damned lies and statistics really is when I don't believe we should be seeking a quantitative measure of performance in the first place. Most of those arguments you allude to, Chris, are rarely framed around social benefit. But rather, they are economic arguments about the distribution of scarce resources, artificially scarce in many cases. The rhetoric of economics is a scholarly interest we all share, and I have often turned to each of your work to interrogate and debunk the economic myths and cliches that pervade not only college administrations, but the faculty as well. And one thing that struck me about your recent MLA newsletter, Chris, is that the argument you make is in many ways an economic argument. It is also a statistical argument focused on the acquisition, circulation, and usually quantification of various forms of data related to the job market and graduate admissions, enrollments, course offerings, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And as you acknowledge, as soon as we start metricizing and quantifying, we risk capitulating to the logics of neoliberalism, which got us into this crisis in the first place. 
And that's part of what your chapter in your most recent collection, Limits of the Numerical, is about. In that case, related to the Democratic Party and the way they accepted and then imposed specious metric-based economism. So I think a really important question is how do we better engage in these kinds of conflictual debates about the crises of literary studies and the humanities without conceding and reproducing the terms and ideological foundations, which are weighted against us from the start, both as laborers and as humanists? Well, I think one, the first leads to the second. Like you develop a certain basic facility with the higher arithmetic, as one of my professors called it, what I do, which is true. And then you are not intimidated out of having your own agency. I mean, the argument about the Democratic Party in that chapter that you're referring to in that collection is that they used economic data as a modality of necessity that they shoved down the throats of the communities without giving them a say in how it was going to be implemented. So they just said, globalization, the numbers show, the economic science shows that you have to lose your job and your job's going to go to Mexico or it's going to go to East Asia or wherever. Sorry. I mean, that was basically the policy during the Clinton period. Well, here's some job retraining money, you know, like a small amount. But there was no democracy to this. Regardless of where you fit on the political spectrum, you're going to react, I think, in a pretty similar way to somebody telling you, you have absolutely no choice. The numbers don't lie in this and the numbers have taken your choice away about how the economy of your community is going to be restructured. Local governments got bulldozed, the counties got bulldozed, the states got bulldozed. Some of them were basically on the take in terms of trying to bribe companies to stay and vice versa, you know, get, like doing revolving door stuff into what they saw was the rising sector business to get out of the declining sector, which was local government or state government. And here we are with a country that doesn't really believe in the Democrats. It's just they're not as insanely racist and you know, crypto or openly fascist, but nobody thinks the Democrats, you know, with partial exception of neo-Bidenism, have an economic plan. And it's partly because, it's largely because the Democrats used economic data to run roughshod over people's feelings about their jobs in their communities and whether there were alternative ideas. It was, there is no alternative. Those guys have never been held accountable for that. Clinton, Robert Reich, all the people that came up with that scheme, and we're still living with the consequences. This has happened in literature and language study. We just adopted this, oh, well, the market has decided there just aren't that many academic jobs for our PhDs. Well, in fact, I mean, we're, not, we're only producing 2,000 a year, which is barely replacement rate for retirements. It's not like there's a flood of excess intellectual people that there's no room for in a university system that has 19 million students. So we've fallen for that also. And that's one of the things that I've been trying to help with. That's really helpful context to think about the macro ideological situation of the force of data by the Democrats and neoliberalism. I think it is also important to think about our epistemic biases as you sort of frame the question that 
But I almost am inclined to think that it's not that literary people are so suspicious of numbers. I think it's that we don't work collectively very well. And it's really a shame because our objects are about imagining collectivity a lot of the time. That's what literary texts do. And it's really a shame because we've adopted certain kinds of models of what rigor is and what higher order knowledge is, which are involved in kind of particularizations and localizations and little sublime, evanescent, unreplicables. But actually, <laughs> our knowledge base is about scalable social patterns. It is about different kinds of, of world building. It's about the kinds of both hard infrastructures and meaning making that hold worlds together. So I do think we, we have to sort of reshift our <laughs> epistemic values, as it were, because I don't think they're totally anathema to the political project of thinking about our profession and its role in society, and then advocating for it. You know, Chris said, nobody gets into this business to argue. Nobody gets into this business to do math. I did a lot of math to, you know, kind of address inflation in our union contract, for instance. But I don't think that the math at all is like the core of what I've been doing for a year in bargaining. It's storytelling. It really is. Here's a member. Here's a faculty member. And here's their struggle. Why don't we have an institutional policy that makes things less hard for that or more equitable for this nursing mother or for this trans student? Or That's storytelling. That's what our advocacy problem is. That's what our organizing work is. But you have to be able to want to think collectively to do that work. And it does take a different amount of time than our teaching and our research. It's service. When Chris refers to the you know higher order math or the kind of funny mathematics of, of university budgets, anybody who actually steps into a service role in the university becomes quickly literate in those languages. And they're not really hard math because it's about people and taking care of people and making budgets. Budgets are political documents, right? So how do you express priorities and how do you advocate for priorities? And as Chris also said, right, like senates can make really big differences, but people have to be willing to serve in their senates. You know, we always see the like, oh, the Facebook post where everybody's like, oh, don't be chair. But people do need to be department chair because that's how they're going to learn how institutional power works in their immediate sphere. And, you know, the one last thing I would say about this, about the epistemic biases that keep us out of activism, it's really weird that literary and cultural studies dramatically overstated the political power of making arguments about cultural objects and dramatically under attended to the political power of those objects themselves. So if you want to imagine otherwise, if you want to organize the world differently, you have to start in your like immediate proximate domain. And that's like serving on committees to make the institution function in a less exploitative way. And there yeah. really is power there. I, that point you made about working collectively is really important. One of the effects of you know decades of neoliberalism is that it makes it hard for everybody to do that. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay, so if direct active engagement with the bureaucracy of the institution, a core component of what is usually called service, is crucial to the collective health and wealth of MLA members, what can be done to motivate us to do that work because the current incentive structure at most institutions that I'm familiar with and across the profession as the whole, I suspect, is exactly the inverse. Mm -hmm. Service is a distant third category in standards for tenure and promotion. It's the back page or pages of the CV. 
Anna also brings up the entrenched habits and formulas of literary scholarship, especially the kinds of scholarship generally preferred by the peer-reviewed journals which emerging scholars have to navigate, which are at least, I would argue, frequently hostile to macro-ideological critique, transfield, historicization, collectivist provocation. Do we, and, and by we, I guess I mean MLA, but also specialized member organizations like V21 and C19 and the Mark Twain Circle, do we need to change how we define, evaluate, and reward what the profession does? CMTS gives a bunch of awards, for instance, only one of which is for service, and not exactly the kind of service Anna is talking about either. Do we need to change the peer review process or what kinds of research methods and article formulas are associated with entry to the field? Do we need to do different kinds of research? I don't want to shift the research that people are already doing. I don't think that works at the national level. I just want them to get paid for doing it. What I'm interested in is in shifting the working conditions, right? Moving unpaid research time into paid articulating what amount of time uh, professors at, at different kinds of institutions need to have their intellectual lives. Universities are for teacher scholars. This is true of two-year, it's true of any kind of regional institution. I mean, this is true of secondary school teachers too, but it's by definition true of tertiary professors. They're active knowledge creators and adjudicators as well as transmitters. And they can't transmit properly or interact properly with their students unless they're more or less on the cutting edge of what's happening in their fields. So everybody needs to be paid for that. And it can, it can be quantified like four hours a week, eight hours a week. How many hours a week do you need to keep up with your field in the professional journals? General practitioner physicians are supposed to spend at least one afternoon a week going through, you know, plows or something looking for new material on issues that they regularly face in their practices. It's absolutely the same for us, except it's all supposed to be overtime and your free time and your nights after your kids have gone to bed. And it's just completely unacceptable. So, I mean, my feeling is, you know, what can the MLA do? I mean, we can start articulating needs and standards, needs and standards. What do our members need? And there, there needs to be a survey, et cetera, so like really articulating that. What are the standards that come out of those needs? And then, you know, the third step is how do we organize over a period of years, take five years, 10 years to achieve the satisfaction of those needs of our colleagues in their workplaces? It's just, it's really basic. We just have let departments do it or deans try to do it and they can't do it. I think that it's something that unions can do. One of the biggest issues we've been fighting this year is trying to spell out a workload policy where units have to define what is a reasonable expectation of general average workload for people in different positions. And the administration really, really hates that because they don't want to find themselves in the position of people who've been asked to take on other duties actually demanding compensation for it. These are really real fights and they happen in really real ways. And I think that what Chris is saying about generating and transmitting knowledge is incredibly important. And we have to keep defending research and the research part of teaching, the research vitality, the research vein, spine, core of teaching. 
in order to refuse the de-skilling of our profession, which is the what we're living through. You know, when everybody's teaching on incredibly vulnerable and precarious contracts, when everybody is teaching way more students than any kind of data would show is successful for teaching, say, freshman writing or freshman math. Small class size is essential, right? <laughs> That's the only thing that guarantees student success, not these big multi-million dollar centers for student success with lots of administrators, right? These are extremely nuts and bolts issues to have to like think through. And I would think that one thing that the MLA could do is actually, you know, provide definitive information. Like I, I just cited an economist study about student success rate improvements and four-year graduation rate improvements. And it's small class sizes in the first year is the only way that universities can spend money to actually improve those things. That has been calculated by our quant overlords, but the MLA needs to tell that story, right? What is essential for every university in the country? First year writing, freshman comp, freshman math, and freshman bio, and those classes need to be small. And that means that the ratio needs to change. And that means we need more people doing the work. When I say there's plenty of jobs. They're just not equitably structured. It's because we're teaching too many students without enough time to do regenerative research to stay on top of things without the right ratio to actually have the students effectively be receiving and constructing that knowledge. There are super hard problems to think through institutionally, but they don't have to be localized. <laughs> the MLA could be a disseminator of like, what is a good workload policy for tenure stream faculty? What is a good workload policy for research one faculty? What is a good workload policy for teaching and stream faculty, right? The, there are kind of like formal solutions <laughs> to these things that shouldn't have to be reinvented by every union or by every department chair. Not exactly metrics, but patterns for equitable institutions. I think that's the kind of stuff that the MLA could probably pretty effectively formulate, articulate, circulate. Yeah, it absolutely could. And some of those things are already there. Mm -hmm. One of my humble projects has been to compile all of the MLA statements over the years on things like minimum salaries, mm -hmm. maximum class size in a, in a language course, compile those into guidelines that members can just find on the website and use to advocate on the campuses. Yeah. It's a start, but there are big gaps in that. I mean, one of the things we were able to see when we put this together over the last couple of years, and it just took such a long time, is that there's holes in it. We don't have any research policies. MLA has never opined about what a, a minimum um, annual research budget is for a professor that has research written into their contract mm -hmm. as one of their duties. You know, if you're going to be evaluated on your research output at tenure, promotion, or merits, or whatever, you need to have some time to do that as part of your work week. The MLA should, as it has developed a policy on a bunch of other things. One that I would just point out that, that I am particularly proud of is defining resource allocation as an academic freedom issue. In other words, if you have no power over how money is spent within your division or within your department, then you don't actually have the academic freedom to pursue the kinds of research that require those resources. You know, if somebody else can just not give you the resources and therefore you can't do the research, then it wasn't your choice to not do it. You know, there has to be a collective decision-making process that involves research funding as much as other aspects of academic freedom coverage. And MLA is a great place to do that. I just want to say one more thing about this. So there's this apparatus of 
humanities entities, and I mentioned some of them, and they aren't networked, really. Mellon is the gorilla in the private sector, uh, and its, its intentions for sustaining academic research are unclear right now, getting really mixed messages on that. There seems to be a certain amount of retreat. There's the NEH, which is grossly underfunded, and the fraction of its total budget that goes to actual research is, is at most about 15%. The rest is for public programming and other stuff that's very worthy, but that is not research. And then there's the NHA and there's the ACLS, and the ACLS has tons of learned societies, dozens. But it doesn't work like the science entities. We're not really part of the national academies that do lobbying. The Office of Science and Technology in the White House doesn't include our fields. The NEH is not actually technically a federal research agency because it doesn't spend $100 million a year on research. So we don't actually have a research agency on the federal level that we might have thought that we did in the, in the technical sense. There's an underpowered structure that people are going to have to really work to develop and that is painful labor that nobody wants to do it's kind of an existential thing i think at this point like if we don't do it we're going to become service fields and kind of disappear as as research operations over 10 years i think something that's tricky about that labor that you're talking about that institution building at that macro level is that it's sort of like only powerful people can already do it, right? You, as the president of the MLA, it's right. awesome that you have this in your sights that there is not a coordinated apparatus of humanities advocacy. So, and you sh sh can probably get um, Elizabeth Alexander to take your phone calls, right? So like, the, what can you guys do together to join forces, Mel and the gorilla and MLA? And, but the, the problem, like I said, is that this is powerful, this is powerful echelon power building, right? And, you know, we're pitching in a conversation about what can the MLA do because it is a powerful institution, but there is also our power in our membership, right? And, you know, what's the bottom mm -hmm. up version of doing power building, it is things like the vast majority of our profession works in public institutions and they're not necessarily unionized. But if you have unionized faculty and united tenure track and non-tenure track faculty and pan-campus unions with student workers and with janitorial and clerical workers and with doctors and nurses, and you can have real pressure on state legislatures for funding. And that is how to reverse, you know, there's the advocacy wing of like, oh, if the NEH was better at lobbying like the NSF is, then, they, then we would get more money. But there's also the power from below demand. Most academic employees are public and they should be united together to demand more. I agree. I mean, that's the, you know, the question is, how do we do that? I totally agree. It'd be great if it could be a grassroots thing. That isn't how knowledge policy has historically been done in the United <laughs> States. It's super top down. It's terrible. And we're disadvantaged by that. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to flip it. All right. So. Chris's comparison of the STEM academies with NEH and Anna's advocacy for pan-campus unions raises a thorny question about the potential for cooperation and collective action across departments and divisions. Core to the neoliberal university, as Chris has framed it, is the habituation of university budgeting as zero-sum competition. 
the prevailing culture since at least the 1980s has been every dollar that goes to English or philosophy is a dollar that is being taken away from sociology or business or finance. And more, more often the flow is in the other direction. And this interdisciplinary combat has sometimes been taken to grotesque levels as economic historians like Phil Murawski and Eddie Nakka have detailed. Economics departments and even member organizations actively cultivated strategies of social science imperialism and then outright missions of destruction against humanities departments, especially history. I'm sure many of those who are listening would have a hard time imagining themselves and their colleagues in the B-School, Law School, and Finance Department as having a collection of mutual interests. So how do we navigate or transcend this deeply ingrained culture of competition between disciplines? Okay, so I think this is a crucial question, and I think Mm -hmm. there's a couple of ways to open it. So one is that conditions on the ground are breaking down those barriers. So for instance, our union was unsuccessful. We unionized 10 years ago, but there was a drive about 16 years before that, you know, 16 years ago, so six years before that, that failed largely because it wasn't able to get the scientists and engineers on board. What happens in that intervening six years is really profound attacks at the state level, really reactionary Koch brothers, governors, trying to rescind public employee pensions, trying to rescind public employee health care. The bargain that the engineers made, that they would take a lower salary to be a public servant because they would have job security, because they would have health care, because they would have a state pension, that bargain was no longer good. That is what I mean by the conditions you know, shift. It's not the case that the sciences and the social sciences are opposed to the humanities in austerity. They are not benefiting. What is happening is a uniform attack on speculative knowledge. Nobody is allowed to study biology anymore because it doesn't translate into profit enough. It's only nursing, engineering, (laughs) and business are the only growth areas. So the whole arts and sciences are cut out of that because they're too speculative and they're too holistic and they're too knowledge-based. And that's not what the kind of austerocrat regime is about. So we're having new conditions where the enrollment declines in biology are as bad as they are in England. There are opportunities for seeing that our common enemy is instrumental reason in a certain way. Our common enemy is vocationalization of the college degree at the same time as de-skilling of the professoriate. So I think the conditions on the ground do mitigate against those divides and that maybe, you know, humanists have hyperbolized them in their scholarship in ways that are actually like not germane to their practical situation. It's also true that humanists have to do a good job saying what it is that we offer. And I think that certain paradigms of like our forms, again, of particularization, our forms of historicization, our forms of, you know, Debbie Downering as an epistemic model, like haven't necessarily, you know, positioned us well to cross the aisle with our colleagues about, oh, what do, what do the humanists bring to the study of climate change, for instance, or what do the humanists bring to the study of urban design or medical ethics? Like, these are the big kinds of questions for the modern university, and they're not not humanities <laughs> questions, and we don't, we have plenty of resources, but we have to be synthetic, propositional, affirmative about our values, and humanists don't like to do that. Do you all think that social scientists have a sense of what humanities people do on common topics? Only when what we do is troll them. 
I think that one of the ways that Mellon as Gorilla is directing, and I'm really interested in your concern about research with them, but is directing what is supposed to be the value of the humanities is the whole kind of administrative construct and foundation construct of the public humanities that we've had for 15 years or so. And what that construct involves is a social scientific appreciation of the humanities, which is that we are the prettification of the real things, you know, that we can have the sort of individual stories or the pretty narratives or the artistic renderings sometimes of the real things, but that they, the social scientists, have the real meat of the stuff. And that humanists become more valuable the more we shed the trappings of too much history or too much critique or even too much metaphor and come to the realm of the sociological. I think that's a paradigm that is really being pushed by foundations and really being pushed by university administrations and has some consequences for the study of language and literature. I think that's really well put, Anna. And I would add, also echoing your previous points about deskilling, that because we are presumed to be only the prettification, as you put it, of supposedly more real empirical, data-driven, usually metricized and modeled research, we are also presumed to be more expendable. A biologist or an anthropologist is far quicker to presume that they could teach a course about climate fiction, a course which would likely have no consideration of the novel form or the political genealogy of science fiction. They are far quicker to presume that they could teach that kind of course than they are that one of us could teach a course cross-listed in one of their fields. And the more lines that get cut, the more our labor gets diverted into general education, the more entitled non-humanities faculty will feel to teach the more advanced courses in the humanities. They definitely don't want to teach comp or technical writing or introduction to ethics. And although I'm totally guilty of, what did you call it, Anna, hyperbolized incendiary phraseology in my critiques of economics, none of which I regret, by the way, at least part of the reason I have developed that approach is that for many years, my polite, well-intentioned attempts to engage across disciplines were met with silence or disdain. And this is also hyperbole, I suppose, but my impression is only when you cut an economist will he deign to speak to you. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, you had Merve Emra on the show. I mean, her work on post-discipline is partly about this. What does it mean if more novels are being taught in business schools than in English departments because English departments have been turned into service composition and MBA people feel like they know what a novel does and it imparts this message or that medical schools are doing it? Yeah, what does that mean? Not sure. I always thought that criticism was bringing into sort of verbal consciousness the relationship between the work of literary art and other forms of knowledge that are not part of literature. In other words, that it was a interdiscipline, it knows things from other fields better than. A lot of people in those fields actually don't. In other words, it's like a, it's a multidiscipline on some level. A number of our colleagues that know stuff in a lot of different areas is fairly impressive. It's like the old, like the Renaissance person, you know, on some level. And I think we should really see that as a strength. 
when I was a graduate student, this was always how I explained why it took so long to get an English PhD. You don't just have to read a lot of novels and poems in your chosen geographic and temporal field, but you are simultaneously getting the equivalent of several degrees in your methodological subfields. For yeah. me, it was primarily the history of economic thought and the history of U.S. mass media. But I knew people who were studying psychology and law and theology and physics, not to mention foreign languages, of course. And often we were expected to pick up little mini competencies in a bunch of methodologies we might not even be that interested in just because they were preferred by the department or our advisors or were, you know, trendy at the time. Yeah. It's no wonder it takes people seven or eight years to finish. It's a yeah. lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think uh, an obstacle has been this social science move to quantification as the definition of rigorous knowledge. So most of the fields that I know, I mean, sociology is sort of the best in those and they all have economics anxiety and they're basically, many of them are trying to move into, you know, quantified studies of, you know, like network analysis sociology is a pretty good example of something that's been around for a while. It's just, it feels uninterested in humanities methods, which it sees as kind of even lower on the status ladder than it is. Like the last thing it wants to do is like go down two rungs to be with us. You know, it's trying to go up a rung to be a little bit more like the sociology of economics as opposed to, you know, just being regular sociology. So I, one longer term project that occurs to me is the articulation of methods. Like, how do we talk about developing? I mean, we do this in the classroom all the time. Like try, I'm trying to explain to students I read this text and here's how I got this interpretation from the text. How did I get at the end of this lecture going from talking about this Arthur Conan Doyle story, The Real of Dancing Men, to talking about British colonialism both in South Africa and in Afghanistan? How did I do that? Why, like, why the hell did I even do that? All the steps have to be there, right? We do do this all the time in order to not just be dictating knowledge to students, but showing them how to do it themselves. And now we have to do this with our colleagues as well. And in order just to even get in the door with collaborations on things like environmental issues. I've been asked at cocktail parties a number of times by people, for example, in environmental studies or in cognitive psychology. Well, students from your department have you know, been sitting in my classes and there's a positive, well, I think of a polite way of asking, so what do they have to contribute to the kind of research that we're doing in this class? <laughs> I'm not on their committee, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's a bad answer. <laughs> the burden should not all be on us. Like, oh, have to justify, like, I really hate, oh, we have to justify our existence. I hate that. It spoils the whole thing. I mean, it's hard to gauge, it's hard to make a study systematically of like what social scientists think of humanistic method or something. And we could all have bad anecdotes, but we could also all have good anecdotes. And I know there are people who say, who work on climate or who work on urban design, 
who feel like they have a lot of willing partners, you know, in the social sciences. I guess a, a different way to have the question would be instead of the burden being on us to, in the realm of ideas, defend that we have worthy research and worthy knowledge, what if we defend side by side with our sociologists or our economists, the just time that it takes to make knowledge, right? So that we think that what we have in common with these other disciplines is our working conditions, right. not that what we have in common is shared epistemic values. Yeah. Building bridges there isn't getting them to accord legitimacy to our methods. It's actually talking to them about like what makes their day-to-day -day job hard and isn't that what makes our job hard too. I think that's genuinely good advice. And the only caution I would give is that some of these fields are disproportionately represented in college and university administrations. You know, colleagues and coworkers in the social sciences become management at a much more rapid rate than we do. And if we don't address to some extent the legitimacy gap, their prevailing attitude that our methods are unserious because qualitative, speculative, or whatever, they bring that prejudice to the table when it's time to fund tenure lines or cut programs. So yes, yes, sure, solidarity first, but I think we also have considerable pressure to defend our epistemic position. One thing you said earlier, Anna, is how we have overestimated the political efficacy of criticism and underestimated the political efficacy of literary and other artistic texts. That thinking through artistic works is part of the work, not just as teachers and scholars, but as organizers and activists. So I want to close by asking, what are you reading, watching, listening to that helps you comprehend and confront our working conditions? Mm. I'm never not watching and teaching heist movies. I think, I think they're one of the great collective art forms of our time. I think that we need ways of envisioning cooperatives and collectives and collaborations and unions and schemes and ragtag groups and acapella harmonies. And so I take a lot of spiritual uh, fortitude from heist movies. I'm trying to read a lot of what I'm calling climate fiction that wasn't like climate fictions that aren't dystopian, hideous, sadistic spectacles, but are trying to think in literary ways about the causes of worlds and the entanglements of worlds. Novels about car culture and the 70s and Houston. And I'm just trying to sort of like exalt in uh, creative ability to identify causes because then we can have better solutions. That's a really hard question, though. I need a good soundtrack. What do you got, Chris? I'm just going to jump in here really quickly to say that if you want to hear Anna talk more about cli-fi that resists dystopia, you should definitely check out the episode we did last year on Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future with Sherry Marie Harrison and Min Young Song. You can find it at marktwainstudies.com backslash ministry for the future. I'm always re reading crime. <laughs> Because there's a fascination with basically unlawful agency, unauthorized action against systems, both in the part of the, like the detective and as well as the person doing the crime, the people. And then there's also this process of knowledge creation that is part of those narratives that I think is really important, you know, that like interpretive analysis, which is kind of at the heart of what we do in literary study and criticism, you know, it's hermeneutical. 
that's a really difficult thing. It's because you're basically bringing together unrelated pieces of data and trying to assemble them in the face of subterfuge and deception and propaganda and conventional wisdom and pre-formatted expectations. You know, so it's really like the existential struggle to, to understand anything. <laughs> And it, it's too individualistic. You know, I, I mean, I really agree with Anna, what you've said several times on this show about forming collective agency and community agency and how to do that. I mean, I just think that's absolutely essential. And it's kind of like a civilizational mm-hmm. challenge. You know, it's like a humanity has to get there out of this kind of authoritarian resurgence and focus on warlords and the focus also on celebrities, which I think is incredibly pernicious and into some sense of acting with others in a continuous way. Mm -hmm. I mean, our seminars, our teaching are kind of models of that also, you know, just the practical work that we do with students and what they do with each other is like a great model for how you could actually do government society and a bunch of other things. I mean, the work people is do, doing in our field is amazing. The research is, you know, as good, if not better than ever. The people coming in are just have enormous courage and conviction. And I just, I really admire their persistence, you know, with levels of debt mm-hmm. that are unprecedented, levels of, of precarity that are not daunting them. So I really want as somebody in at the other end to use, you know, whatever experience I have to try to make it easier for them, you know, try to do some building of the infrastructure that will allow them to thrive in the way that some of us have been able to. That was Christopher Newfield and Anna Kornberg. If you are at MLA this weekend, we hope you will join us, perhaps especially for Chris's presidential plenary and Anna and my roundtable on new platforms for literary criticism. You can find links to these events in the MLA program by visiting marktwainstudies.com backslash working conditions. The American Vandal podcast will be taking a short hiatus after this episode. This is the 21st episode I've produced in the past 11 months, and I need to take some time to write. If you came to the pod recently, I encourage you to explore the back catalog in the interim. Most of our episodes are evergreen, or at least I think so. And we'll be back in the spring. We are currently prepping series on the Federal Reserve, Abolition Studies, and the sesquicentennial anniversary of the Gilded Age. Thanks again to Chris Newfield and Anna Cornblue my fellow staff at the Center for Mark Twain Studies, Dana Leung for lending us his music, and most of all you, I'm Matt Siebold.